This morning, we should not only stand with our Canadian brothers and sisters because it's the right thing to do to promote the biblical sexual ethic. And we do that because we understand that our time is coming in our country when it will be outlawed here to preach and to speak the truth. But we also stand with our Canadian brothers to stand against homosexuality. Because in standing against homosexuality, guess what? We're actually standing up for homosexuals and we're saying your only hope is Christ. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. Johns County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Those of you who maybe have been following the news and understanding uh, that it's important to be up on our times, um, maybe came across... uh, just in your reading or watching of the news, a certain bill, it's called Bill C-4, that uh, has been passed in the Canadian Senate. I want to talk a a little bit about this bill before we open up God's Word here this morning because uh, this bill is going to be something that goes uh, into the law of the land of Canada that could eventually make its way here. There's already attempts at this sort of legislation from liberal people in our country um, to restrict our, essentially, religious liberty, to restrict our ability to freely proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. On Tuesday, December 7th, the Canadian Senate passed Bill C-4, which effectively outlawed Any attempt to convert a homosexual from his or her her destructive and sinful lifestyle became the law of the land officially on January 7th. I uh, was invited to a Zoom call with Dr. John MacArthur and some other pastors uh, several days ago in which uh, he was calling on some of us to stand with our Canadian brothers who are ministers in Canada who, uh, because this bill has been passed, are going to be under the threat of major persecution, potentially even imprisonment, for their preaching on the biblical sexual ethic, preaching against homosexuality. They have slated this Sunday, today, January 16th, as the day in which we as pastors stand with our Canadian brothers to publicly and really peacefully and pastorally protest to let all governments of the world know that we stand on the side of Scripture's understanding of the biblical sexual ethic. The Bible is clear. God created male and female. He created them to bear the image of God. It is only biblical and marriage is only defined as that between, as that between a man and a woman. 
There's another ministry that I'm not affiliated with, but I have tremendous respect for. It's called the Ezra Institute, and it is in Canada. Uh, Christian author and pastor and Christian thinker Joe Boot leads the charge, and, and he is standing up on this Sunday as well to preach the biblical sexual ethic. But let me talk a little bit about this bill. It's dangerous because, as I said, it effectively outlaws, effectively outlaws any attempt to preach the gospel and call sinners to repentance. It's obviously based upon the lie of humanism that such a bill protects human health and human rights. That's the argument. The criminal code, and that's what it's called, among other things, includes this in the bill. Number one, it is a crime to cause any person to convert from what we define as Christians as a sexually immoral lifestyle of homosexuality. It promotes or actually prevents the promotion or advertising of such conversions and uh, any attempt that anyone makes, either in advertising or promotion, we could say through preaching, through writing, through speaking, personal conversation, a counselor, a pastor, or even a parent who attempts to change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexuality or attempts to change a person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex assigned to it, the person at birth, or someone who represses or reduces non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior could spend up to two years or five years in prison. Of course, as Christians, we believe that a person's gender is not assigned to them at birth by a doctor or a professional health care or a parent. We believe a person's gender is assigned to them in the womb by God. The psalmist is clear that we are knitted in our mother's womb. We are the creative works of God. A doctor doesn't assign gender. Gender is the result of God's sovereign design. And God has created only two genders, male and female. That is clear in Scripture. By the way, just a little bit of history on this. This bill, C4, strengthens a previous bill, C6, I believe was the name of it, in Canadian legislation that said it was illegal to try and convert a child or non-consenting adult from their homosexual lifestyle. C4 goes beyond that, and it says that if you have homosexual desires, you aren't even allowed to seek conversion yourself. If you are a parent and you try to repress some sort of homosexual identity in your child, you can go to prison legally. It's a criminal offense, a violation of the criminal code. Someone who is trapped in homosexuality and once freed from it, that person becomes a criminal if they even try to be set free from that by going to a pastor, a counselor, a parent a teacher, whatever. This means it's not only illegal to speak bad about homosexuality, but it is illegal to preach the gospel because you cannot faithfully preach the gospel unless you tell sinners that they are in sin. And if you can't be specific about what sin they need to repent from, then you're not preaching a clear gospel. Such as a direct attack on both the family and the gospel. It's an attack 
on Scripture as God's Word. It's an attack on the Ten Commandments as God's universal standard. It's an attack on the family as the basic building block of civilization. It's an attack on the church as the institution that has been empowered to preach the gospel, which converts sinners out of immoral, abominable lifestyles like homosexuality to free them and to give them eternal life. As I said, the language in the bill, you can read it yourself, just Google it, is broad enough to include the censoring of sermons preached against sexual immorality because it speaks about anything that promotes or advertises against homosexuality is a violation of the criminal code. It even describes heterosexuality as a moral lifestyle as a myth, as a myth. Scripture is abundantly clear that homosexuality is a sin in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. It is listed as a, as a sin that is perverted and depraved and abominable. It's listed as a lifestyle that only conversion through Christ can free one out of that sort of lifestyle so that person can live in a way that reflects the way they were meant to live and reflects the glory of God and reflects the image of God in whom they were created. So this bill is an attack not just on the biblical sexual ethic, it's an attack on the family because the family is what God has set apart to be the thing that builds civilization, perpetuates the gospel generationally, Therefore, it is an attack on the church. It is an attack on Christianity. One person said one time in history, and I quote, the family is the test of freedom because the family is the only thing that the free man makes for himself and by himself. So this bill is an attack on the family, which is an attack on freedom itself. As Christians, we are called to speak the truth. We are called to speak the truth in love, but we are called to speak the truth. We cannot, as believers, compromise as the church. We cannot compromise. We cannot begin to look like the world to try to reach the world. That's foolishness. That doesn't work. That cannot work. You cannot preach a pure gospel without mentioning sin, and you cannot mention sin truly unless you mention specific sins this legislation as i said has already been passed so all the pastors in canada who preach against homosexuality today have violated a law in western civilization from a country that had christian roots and that sort of thing is already in the makings in our own country with that in mind i want you to take your bibles this morning And turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 7, because in God's providence, as Dr. MacArthur has asked us to preach on the biblical sexual ethic in God's providence as we have been working through Mark chapter 7, Jesus mentions here in verses 14 through 23 the types of sins that are filled in man's heart. And the sin that heads the list is sexual immorality. That is what defines the depravity of man's heart. Let's pick up in verse 14. Scripture says, He called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. 
when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled, thus he declared, all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let us ask him for his help this morning. Father, thank you for your truth. Your word is truth. Grant us grace. Grant us spiritual eyes by the power of your spirit to understand the depth of man's depravity so we might see the glory of your gospel on full display. We love you. We thank you for this text and the words of Christ. We ask that you would help us as we speak forth your truth today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. It should not surprise us that as Western civilization moves more and more toward a cultural Marxism that is being propagated by the left, that there would be an attack on the family, that there would be an attack on freedom that there would be an attack on the biblical sexual ethic. Karl Marx actually developed his anti-family views during a stay in Paris in the 1840s by a famous socialist who influenced him, a man by the name name of Charles Foyer, who advocated the replacement of monogamous marriage with a system that allowed for extreme latitude and sexual passions extending all the way, of course, to homosexuality. He proposed that parents were unnecessary and that children needed to be raised communally. Clear attack on the family. Noted American homosexual activist Michael Swift wrote an editorial in the 1980s. This has been going on in our culture for quite some time. That the, the title of this editorial was a homosexual manifesto in which he fantasized about what he wanted to see, which was essentially the undoing of the West through sexual immorality, and in particular, homosexuality. And this is what he said would happen. This is the 1980s. He said, and I quote, We shall sodomize your sons, emblems of your feeble masculinity, Seduce them in your schools, in your dormitories, in your gymnasiums, in your locker rooms, in your sports arenas, in your seminaries, in your youth groups, in your movie theater bathrooms, in your army bunkhouses, in your houses of Congress, wherever men are with men together. Your sons shall become our minions and do our bidding. They will be recast in our image. Women, we shall take your men from you. Women, you say you wish to live with each other instead of men, then go and be with each other. All laws banning homosexual activity will be revoked. Instead, legislation shall be passed with engenders love between men. If you dare cry faggot, fairy, queer at us, we will stab you in your cowardly hearts and defile your dead puny bodies. 
We shall make films about love between heroic men, which will replace heterosexual infatuations presently dominating your cinema screens. You will be shocked and frightened when you find that your presidents and their sons, your senators, your film stars, your television personalities, your civic leaders, your priests are not safe heterosexual figures you assume them to be. There will be no compromises. Those who oppose us will be exiled. The family unit spawning ground of lies will be abolished. The family unit which only dampens imagination and curbs free will must be eliminated. Perfect boys will be conceived and grown in the genetic laboratory. All churches who condemn will be closed. Our only gods are handsome young men. The exquisite society to emerge will be governed by an elite comprised of gay poets. One of the major requirements for a position of power in the new society for homoeroticism will be indulgence in the Greek passion. Any man contaminated with heterosexual lust will be automatically barred from a position of influence. All males who insist on remaining stupidly heterosexual will be tried in homosexual courts of justice and will become invisible men. We shall rewrite history, history filled and debased with your heterosexual lies and distortions. We shall be victorious because we are fueled with ferocious bitterness of the oppressed. Tremble, swine, when we appear before you without our masks, End quote. Clearly, um, play right out of the playbook of Karl Marx. An attack on the family, a promotion of homosexuality, a blurring of the genders, even in this laboratory-created sort of other sex, a hybrid between a man and a woman, that sort of thing is even going on in today's world. This was the 1980s. Where does such a sinful attitude come from? Where does such a sexually immoral viewpoint come from? Well, you might say it comes from the gutters of hell, but according to Jesus in Matthew 7, it comes from man's heart. That sort of abominable practices comes from man's heart, man's sinful heart. William Barclay says that the passage before us is well nigh the most revolutionary passage in the New Testament. Because in this passage, Jesus points out that the problem of man is not outside of man, but inside of man. And you can no longer or no sooner escape sin than escaping your own body, escaping your own heart, escaping the recesses of your own soul, your inner core. This is where sin comes from. This is where sexual immorality comes from. And this is where comes all the other sins that Jesus lists in this list. Of course, in the context, Jesus is addressing what lied behind the legalism of the religious leaders. What lied behind their legalism was the fact that they did not have an understanding of the depravity of man's heart. They did not believe Psalm 51, that we were brought forth in iniquity and in sin did our mothers conceive us. They did not believe James 1.15 or the principle of James 1.15, although it wasn't written at the time, that desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. They rejected what Paul brings out in Romans chapter 5, which is built upon the Old Testament, and that is that it is by one man's disobedience that the many were made sinners. That we are sinners by birth. 
Sin is the product of inward lust. Sin is the product of our nature inherited from Adam. They didn't understand that, and that's why they came up with legalistic rules and regulations because they had such a low view of sin that they thought a bunch of rules could get rid of all of that sin. Jesus says your problem is a problem of the heart. He takes the disciples aside in this passage to explain to them that being spiritually cleansed is not something man can do by living a rigid lifestyle, either in obeying God's law or adding to God's law, that external rites and religious ceremonies, that sort of legalism doesn't clean anyone up. Man's problem is, is internal. He needs a new heart. Legalism is just a veneer. A legalistic lifestyle is just a veneer, an attempt to cover inward corruption and moral pollution that will inevitably come out no matter how many rules and laws and regulations one might have. It is the epitome of audacity to think by the religious leaders that if God's holy and pure law doesn't even have the power to root out sin in our lives, then how audacious for them to think, how audacious for them to think that their extra-biblical rules and regulations could somehow have more power than God's law. God's law is powerful, not powerful to bring salvation, but to condemn, to expose our sin, to lead us to Christ. Instead of focusing on God's law, which inevitably would have brought conviction and led them to salvation, they propped themselves up by preaching extra-biblical rules and regulations that produced the legalism because they thought if you followed that system, you could free yourself from sin and have your own righteousness. Jesus teaches that no outward religious code can cover up the sin of our hearts. We are all depraved. We are all hopeless and helpless apart from given a new heart by the Spirit of God. So Jesus provides in verses 14 through 23 a short parable that reveals these truths. This parable can be outlined in three parts. First, we see the parable testified by Jesus. Secondly, the parable qualified by Jesus. And then third, the parable clarified by Jesus. Notice with me, first of all, the parable testified by Jesus and Verses 14 through 16, it says, He called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Those are the things that defile him. If you go back to verse 1, it says, The Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem. So this is the context Prior to the religious delegation being sent from Jerusalem to surround Jesus to try to trap him, Jesus had been surrounded by the crowds, presumably. The text does not explicitly say that, but it's implied since immediately after Jesus silences this petty committee that we looked at last week, they depart that Jesus calls the crowds back to himself. Beginning of verse 14, he called the people to him again. That is to say, they had been around him, he was teaching them, they, out of respect for the religious establishment, when they came, dispersed and sat back and let them confront Jesus. But now they're gone, Jesus is basically telling them the coast is clear, they can gather back around him, 
And so notice verse 14, he continues, he said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. He's resuming the message that he was teaching them, but now he changes in in midstream to address the issue that the religious establishment just brought up. They had confronted him because he did not follow the tradition of the elders. Jesus is going to reveal why they were so focused on the tradition of the elders. What was their central issue? So he says in verse 14, Hear me, all of you, and understand. That really has an Old Testament ring to it. Because any time in the Old Testament God wanted to call upon his people to listen to his instructions, he would use that term, hear. For example, Psalm 49.1, Hear this, all peoples, give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor, my mouth will speak wisdom. Or Psalm 50, verse 7, Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, I will testify against you. Or Psalm 81.8, Hear, O my people, and I will admonish you, O Israel. That Greek word hear occurs nine times in Mark and signifies a solemn pronouncement. Jesus uses this to get their attention. They would immediately understand this is Old Testament language. Hear me, and don't just hear me, but hear me because I am God. What Jesus is getting ready to testify to is nothing less than an oracle of God. You've heard from the tradition of the elders. You've heard from the scribes and the Pharisees. But now you are going to hear from God. Hear me, all of you, and understand. Do not let this escape your notice. What I am getting ready to say comes from heaven. It comes from God. This is God speaking to his people. Jesus, the shepherd of Israel, having compassion on the sheep who have false shepherds, influencing them toward legalism, influencing them to circumvent God's holy law for the sake of their tradition. So he uses this Old Testament language, hear me, because faith and understanding are always rooted in one's hearing of the word of God. Faith comes by hearing hearing of the preaching of God's word. So like any good pastor will do, Jesus, the true preacher of righteousness, speaks truth to them in the midst of their culture of lies. They taught their own regulations involving obsessive ritual sanitation. And as we saw last week, not only that, but circumventing God's true law by their pronouncement of Corbin over their possessions, so they didn't have to honor the fifth commandment, which said, honor your father and your mother. They had disdain for God's law. They had a love for their traditions, for their voice, for their authority. So Jesus says, hear me and understand all of you. They have been lying. You want to know what the truth is? Here's the truth. Verse 15, he testifies to them, and this is a parable of enduring truth, He says, there is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Of course, this is going back, isn't it, to verse 5, when they asked Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Jesus answers that to say, there is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. Things like food and hands, even if they're dirty hands, are outside of a person. Such things, this is Jesus' point, are not the source of true spiritual impurity. 
The source of defilement is on the inside, not the outside. As Jesus says here, it's the things that come out of a person that defile him. So the elders of Israel had their theology wrong. They thought that defilement worked its way from the outside to the inside. And Jesus shows the very opposite is true. Spiritual defilement works from the inside to the outside. They had gotten it wrong. They overemphasized outward purity as if that could resolve inward purity. But sin is not the result of one's particular environment. Sin is not the result of the situation outside of us, but the sin inside of us. And so Jesus says there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. In other words, Jesus takes the elders' theories of vessels that are defiled, that needed, washed. Skip back up to verse 4. It says, many other traditions they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Jesus essentially says it's not those vessels that have inner defilement, which is the primary issue. It is not those physical vessels of uncleanness that need to be your focus that you constantly baptize to avoid ritual impurity. No, Jesus is saying that moral contamination is not outward, it's inward, it springs from the heart. It's not the filth on the hands, it's the filth on the heart. It's not the scum on the outside, it's the sin on the inside. It's not the dirt inside the physical vessels used for eating that defiles. It's the dirt inside the human vessels. It's dirty hearts that defile and make one sinful. One doesn't become sinful by deeds on the outside alone. One is not a sinner chiefly because he sins. Rather, one sins chiefly because he is a sinner by nature. He can't help to do what he is compelled to do inwardly at his core. So Jesus gives this parable. He testifies to this reality that there's nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. Eating with unwashed hands is not spiritually defiling in the ultimate sense of the word. It's the things that come out of a person which defile him. Now, if you notice in your Bible, some of you will have a number 16 for verse 16. Some of you won't. But you ought to have at least in brackets this phrase, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. I don't want to spend long on this, but let me just mention this. It's placed in brackets by many modern translations because the consensus today with basically the discovery of older and better manuscripts and more reliable manuscripts is that Mark did not originally write those words. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. The uh, Alexandrian tradition of manuscripts therefore omits verse 16, but though these manuscripts omit verse 16, and they are the older and more reliable manuscripts, it's also true that the majority of Greek manuscripts include it because they believe that it was included by a scribe. So instead of removing it entirely, many modern translations just put it in brackets. And after all, it is a common phrase of Jesus. Jesus said uh, probably a dozen different times in the Gospels, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
But here's the point to see. Jesus' words here in verses 14 and 15 echo a central truth that was lost by the tradition of the elders. And I can give to you the verses they missed. For example, 1 Samuel 16, 7, God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. 1 Chronicles 28, 9, the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. Here here was their problem. The tradition of the elders focused on outward purity that bypassed the heart and that inevitably produced hypocrisy. They may have fooled others. They may have deceived an entire nation to their own peril, but God was not fooled. So now the question becomes, why did God emphasize outward purity regulations in his law if he was only concerned about inward purity. Because after all, the religious leaders did get one thing right. God did have ritual laws. There were dietary laws forbidding Israel from eating certain foods in Leviticus 11. There were infections, skin diseases, uh, most notably leprosy that made one ritually unclean. A woman, when she was going through her menstrual cycle, was religiously unclean. All of these were laws of God. They were given, listen to this, as illustrations of man's urgent need for divine cleansing. That was their point. Ceremonial defilement, the need for ritual cleansing before publicly worshiping God and mingling with God's community were outward illustrations conveying that every person is a sinner in need of God's cleansing forgiveness before they enter his presence. And the book of Hebrews makes this clear, right? The book of Hebrews is clear that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins and that the blood of bulls and goats could never remove those sins. That blood of bulls and goats pointed forward to Christ. These ceremonial prescriptions, therefore, Hebrews makes clear in Hebrews chapter 9, cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until Christ appeared. They were meant to serve a purpose until Christ appeared. Salvation through Christ, to which all those things only pointed offers inward cleansing so that God's people, to borrow the language of Hebrews 10.22, can draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having their hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and their bodies washed with pure water. That was the point of all of the ceremonial ritual laws in the Old Testament. What the religious leaders did is they took those symbols and they perverted them and twisted them and turned them into some sort of mechanical thing that you did whereby you could achieve cleanliness and righteousness before God. They taught a works-oriented salvation. Even in the New Covenant today, we have ordinances that symbolize the gospel, don't we? We have the Lord's Supper and we have baptism. It's clear in Colossians chapter 2 that baptism replaced circumcision of the old covenant. You remember God commanded Abraham and his progeny to circumcise his male children as a sign of setting them apart in the Old Testament. But also God was clear that when they entered the promised land, God was clear that his goal was not just circumcised foreskin, but circumcised hearts. You remember this all the way back 
in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 10, God was so clear because he knew that Israel would have a tendency to misunderstand these outward rituals. God said, now Israel, what does the Lord God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart? And with all your soul, this is not just external, to keep the commandments, the statutes of the Lord, which I'm commanding you today for your good. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. God was always after the heart. That's why the prophet Jeremiah rebukes the Israel of his day because they needed an inward circumcision. Circumcise yourselves, Jeremiah says, Jeremiah 4.4, circumcise yourselves to the Lord, remove the foreskin of your hearts. And, And that is why when we get to the New Testament, Paul is so clear that circumcision doesn't mean anything. It has nothing to do with one's salvation because that's what the Judaizers taught that you needed to be circumcised. Paul says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. God never gave laws and ceremonies and rituals to sort of clean man up, to make him no longer a sinner and acceptable before God. No, God was always after the heart. Over and over and over again, Scripture says, I'm after the heart. Circumcise your heart. Follow me with a heart. Love me with a pure heart that is devoted to me. Those in Jesus' day, the scribes and Pharisees, did not love him with a full heart. If you take your Bibles and turn with me over to Colossians chapter 2, we get we can crystallize a little bit the, the ceremonies in Scripture. As I said, baptism replaces circumcision. Baptism in the New Covenant replaces circumcision in the Old Covenant. Colossians chapter 2. Notice with me in verse 11, it says, In Him, that is in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh By the circumcision of Christ. What is that? Verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Paul says that this baptism replaces circumcision, but we know that there are many people even today who are baptized in the new covenant but water has only washed them outwardly, not inwardly. They've never been inwardly or spiritually cleansed. Baptism doesn't save today, just like circumcision in the Old Testament didn't save. There are ceremonies and signs that point to an inner spiritual reality of the heart. For those who have truly been saved, therefore baptism does symbolize the washing away of sins. It does symbolize the work of regeneration that Jesus spoke about to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. But many have water baptism applied to them who only outwardly are cleansed and not inwardly. As I said last week, it's man's default mode to be a legalist, to think he can do something to earn God's favor. Favor. So whether it's circumcision, ritual laws, sacrifices in the Old Testament, or it's baptism and Lord's Supper in the New Testament, God throughout His Bible has used 
powerful illustrations to convey the sovereign work of God in cleansing human hearts through the gospel. But it is not those ordinances or those illustrations that save. They are only signs and symbols of the inner spiritual work of God upon a human heart. To give a new heart. Because that's the issue. We need new hearts. Outward ritual or or ordinance observance alone does not ultimately please God. It never has. It never will. It never could. Deuteronomy 10.12 Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart. Deuteronomy 26.16 This day the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and rules. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. Deuteronomy 30, verse 2, Return to the Lord your God, you and your children. Obey His voice in all that I command you today with all your heart. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart. Remember Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings 8.23 to dedicate the temple. He said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who, who walk before you with all their heart. 2 Chronicles 11.16, those who had set their hearts to seek the Lord God of Israel came from all the tribes of Israel to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord, the God of their fathers. And I love Isaiah 51 verse 7, God calls his true people, and I quote, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. That was the issue of the scribes and Pharisees. The law of God was not in their heart. They did not worship God and obey God from the heart. God hates hollow worship, not from the heart. So Jesus' point in testifying this parable here in, in verse 15, that there's nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him He's simply stating that man's problem is not external. Therefore, it cannot be fixed by external means of man. His problem is internal. He needs fixed by the sovereign hand of God. Sin is not a problem of the outside resolved by the salvation hands of men on the outside. Rather, sin is a problem of the inside resolved by the salvation hands of God and inner work of the Spirit of God alone. Man adds nothing to his salvation. And so when someone thinks that they have to be careful what they put into their body and they have to be careful what they put on their body and they have to be careful about how they behave according to man-made, extra-biblical rules and regulations, that person is revealing the fact that they don't have an understanding of their own depravity. They think they can clean the outside up because the sin doesn't go that deep. That was the problem of the religious leaders. They had an internal issue. And they were too blind to see it. Jesus' audience would have been shocked by this teaching because in one fell swoop in verse 15 with this parable that Jesus testifies to, he has just taken the legs out from underneath the religious establishment and essentially from the religion of Judaism from top to bottom because this is what everyone in Israel believed. 
Sin wasn't that deep. You can clean yourself up through all the ceremonies, rites, and regulations and extra biblical laws according to the tradition of the elders. This wasn't a new truth, but it sounded revolutionary. Just like during the Reformation, the gospel sounded revolutionary because the gospel had been hidden in the darkness of the Roman Catholic Church and their false teaching on salvation. But such appeared new because the tradition of the elders had buried this Old Testament teaching. And that is why we move to the second point. First, we've seen the parable testified by Jesus, but now notice in verses 17 through 20, the parable qualified by Jesus. Uh, Jesus is going to have to make a qualifying statement if the disciples are going to understand this. So notice verse 17, when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And you can't see it in English, but Mark actually uses alliteration here. He says that Jesus left the people, the aklos, the crowd, and he entered the house, the oikos. And, and I think that the, the alliteration of aklos and oikos is meant to point our attention to what Jesus is going to say inside of this house where he patiently teaches the disciples and he qualifies what he means and what he doesn't mean by what he said in verse 15. Now in Matthew's account, in Matthew 15, Matthew reveals that though they needed clarification, the disciples grasped to a degree what Jesus was getting at because Matthew says after they entered the house and left the people, they asked Jesus, Matthew 15, 12, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? Don't you understand that you have attacked the essence of everything they have taught? They were offended when they heard this statement. What statement? The statement he made in verse 15, the parable that he testified to. So notice in your Bibles in verse 17, it says his disciples therefore asked him about the parable. You go back to uh, Matthew chapter 15 with me for just a, a moment in Matthew's version of this. He says it was Peter that asked on behalf of the disciples. Of course, it would be Peter, the spokesman. Verse 15 of Matthew 15. They were in Peter's house where Jesus was staying. That religious delegation was gone. Jesus is going to go deeper into his teaching, and he does that. Now, Mark doesn't provide here what Matthew does, so I want you to see this in verse 12. The disciples came to him and said, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And he answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Both will fall into a pit. Let them alone. Let them alone. That describes the wrath of God's abandonment. It's very similar language to Romans chapter 1 where it says God gave them over, God gave them over, God gave them over. He gave them over to their sexual immorality. He gave them over to their homosexual immorality. God gives people over in his wrath of abandonment when they reject his truth. Similar phrase in Hosea 4.17 where God says Ephraim is joined to idols, let him alone. Let him alone. That is to say, God has given him over. The consciences of the hypocritical religious elite had been so hardened, they had been hardened to the point of judgment. His parable was not hard for them to understand, it was just hard for them to accept. That's why they were offended. 
Their love for their own law, their disdain for God's law revealed they had no fruit. So Jesus says here, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. That's judgment. They, they were not a green plant connected to God's vine. They were dead in sin. And it didn't matter any amount of man-made religious water you might pour on that dead plant isn't going to resurrect it. God didn't plant it. Their root system was a works-based righteousness that wasn't strong enough. It was dead. It was decaying. It was dying. God had given them over to their sin. They were blind guides of the blind. Their hearts were full of darkness, not light. Therefore, they could not bear fruit because apart from the sun's light and being watered by the regenerating work of the Spirit, they would die in their sins. God had given them over. So Jesus says, let them alone. Don't follow their teaching. Don't listen to what they say. Don't worry about the fact that they've been offended. They hold to a dead orthodoxy that has damned them to hell because they think they can earn favor with God. Now turn back over to Mark. He doesn't reveal all of that. That's from Matthew. But what is revealed in this text is that the skin-deep religion of Phariseeism dominated God's people. It seems so revolutionary that Jesus has to qualify what he's talking about. Notice verse 18, and he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Jesus is repeating himself in verse 19. Here's why. Let me qualify it. It enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. Jesus' question, are you also without understanding? There in verse 18. Are you also without understanding? That's a gentle rebuke. He doesn't want to break them because he has compassion upon them as sheep without a shepherd. He has to answer Peter's question, which was all of their question. What does he mean by it? Do you not see, he says in verse 18, that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, verse 19, but his stomach and is expelled? I mean, it's like Jesus is saying, can you 12 not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside can't defile him? Food. Food even eaten with unclean hands journeys through the body and is eliminated. It doesn't enter his heart. It enters his stomach and is expelled. How does simply eating something render someone unclean or spiritually defiled? Jesus is qualifying his statement. He's saying that it is impossible for what goes into a person to defile him since eating is just a physical exercise. It's not spiritual. It doesn't matter how you eat and what you eat. Food goes into your body and it goes into the same place for everybody. It doesn't enter the heart. It enters the stomach. And then it exits. So the heart of the matter, Jesus is saying, is a matter of the heart. The heart is the issue. That's why he qualifies that in verse 19. Food enters not into the heart, but the stomach. The heart is the issue. Now in Old Testament times, the heart 
symbolized one's inner person. It symbolized the, the very seed of one's spiritual being, the core of a person, whereas decision-making took place, whereas rational thinking took place. Jesus had already said, you remember, he quoted Isaiah chapter 29, skip up to verse 6, this people honors me with their lips, but their what? Heart is far from me. Quotation from Isaiah 29. The heart is the issue. The religious leaders missed the heart. Clean or unclean food, washed or unwashed hands, has no impact on a heart, good or bad. Food enters the stomach, it exits the stomach, it doesn't touch the heart. But God was after the heart. The scribes and Pharisees, and anybody for that matter, could eat the right things, the right way, be ceremonially clean, but that didn't change the status of their heart. Proverbs 6.18 says, The heart plots wickedness. It devises wicked plans. Proverbs 22.15 says, The heart produces childish foolishness. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. But then Romans 1.21 says, That although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Foolish hearts. God will probe the heart. Psalm or Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. To give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. This is why Jesus says that whatever goes into a person from outside can't defile him. It enters into his, it doesn't enter into his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. He's qualifying the fact that it makes no difference what you eat. It makes no difference how you eat what you eat. You cannot change the status of your heart. Follow the Old Testament laws, fine. Follow all the tradition of the elders, fine. But it, it does nothing. It does nothing. And then Mark gives his own clarification. In the end of verse 19, Mark says, Thus he declared all foods clean. Now you remember that Mark's mentor, his primary source for this material in his gospel was Peter. And you remember in the book of Acts, Peter had an issue. He had an issue with eating that which was ceremonially considered unclean under Old Testament law God comes to him in a vision and the voice said, what God has made clean, do not call unclean. Acts 10.15. What God has made clean. Jesus made all foods clean here. All foods clean here. All foods, even meat from ceremonially unclean animals, are no longer defiling. Now there may be some wisdom gleaned from the Old Testament regarding our diet, but there's nothing that binds the consciences of God's people regarding what they eat. Jesus declared all foods clean. And after stating that food doesn't affect the heart, Jesus now states the heart does affect, however, the way we live. Notice verse 20, and he said, but... What comes out of a person is what defiles him. In other words, it's what comes from a person's heart that makes him sinfully filthy. 
I mean, this helps us readily see the problem of the Pharisees, right? They had no sensitivity to sin. They had a very shallow view of sin. They did not have a biblical view of sin. It was superficial. Seen in their confidence that man-made regulations could remove sinful behavior. Jesus says, no, you cannot remove sin any more than you can remove your own heart. And you can't clean your sin up any more than you can clean your heart up. What you put in your body has no effect on your heart. It doesn't clean your heart. It doesn't defile your heart. You're already unclean. You're already defiled because you're a sinner. If God's law was never meant to remove sin, but to expose our sin, then how audacious, as I said earlier, for them to think their own puny rules had more power than God's perfect law. No, those human laws were but shutters to the windows of their hearts, keeping the light of God's true law away, thus keeping them from being convicted of their sin, repenting and looking to Christ for salvation. Instead of being convicted in their hearts, they were convinced in their own heads that their extra-biblical rules could make them clean. And that's why I say a legalist does not have a proper understanding of the depravity of man. He has a low view, thinking he can regulate sin out of his life by following self-prescribed codes of righteous living. But the heart is wild. You can put all the range you want on the body, but somehow the heart will always find a way of coming out. And if you don't know that, just look at your children. Because they reveal depravity in an alarming way. So while Jesus declared all foods clean, he simultaneously declared all hearts unclean. All hearts full of sin. And there is a natural progression to this passage because now Jesus truly gets to the heart of the matter, revealing that sin is always a matter of the heart. We move from the parable testified by Jesus, verses 14 through 16, the parable uh, qualified by Jesus, verses 17 through 20, now to the parable clarified by Jesus, verses 21 through 23. After he stated that what comes out of a person is what defiles him, Jesus clarifies in even deeper detail what he means with lucid explanation. You want to understand what I mean when I say you have a dirty heart? Here's what I mean, verse 21. For, let me explain, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. This list of vices is contained, Jesus says, in the heart of man, where his true thoughts are. Notice Jesus says there, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. That is an interesting Greek word, dialogismos is the Greek word. It's where we get our English word dialogue. It refers to an individual's inner reasoning and devisings, his plotting of what evil he will do. You could literally translate it bad dialoguing. There's a bad dialogue that goes on inside of every single person that plans and plots and determines how to perform their evil. That's what Jesus is saying. This is a sophisticated dialogue in your innermost being. We saw earlier that Jesus read the evil inner dialogue 
of the hearts of the Pharisees after he healed the paralytic. We saw that in Mark chapter 5. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus knew the disciples were thinking evil in their hearts, reasoning which one of them was going to be the greatest. God reads hearts. He knows the evil in our hearts. Paul quotes Job 5.13 and Psalm 94.11 and 1 Corinthians 3, saying that God is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they are useless. The dialoguing, the inner corrupt, rational thinking of how to produce evil all comes from the heart. Proverbs 23.7 sums it up. For as he thinks within himself, so he is. And for its part, I mentioned the demise of Western culture earlier. It's because they've exchanged the Bible for humanism. And in their perversion, they have created, in their bad dialoguing of their inward being, they have created a sophisticated worldview and philosophy that is anti-God, anti-biblical, anti-law, anti-Christian, spawned by hell, but most of all coming from their own wicked hearts. And that sort of inner dialogue will always become external. And it has. The cultural Marxists have their own vocabulary speaking about social justice, intersectionality, the oppressed, the oppressor. That, that is not psychological, philosophical, theological language for the academy. That is sinful, delusional thinking of a corrupt heart. Man invents his own ways of sin, evil thoughts. And here Jesus lists first six outer sinful actions followed by six inner sinful drives. And let me just say, Jesus is showing sarcasm here. The scribes and Pharisees loved to give long lists of what you could do and what you could not do. So Jesus says, you want a list? I'll give you a list. Let me list all the things that make you evil. And they all come from your heart. And beloved, this is true of all of us. This isn't just true of the scribes and Pharisees. This isn't true just of the elders of Israel. This is true of every man, every woman, every boy, every girl apart from Christ. Left to their own devices, they will live out in some form or fashion this list. It's inescapable. Because the heart of man is so corrupt that it pumps sin through every area of our lives and sets us on the course of hell. The heart of man is a factory of evil that manufactures all sorts of evil devices, including the ones listed here. Notice the thing that heads the list. For from within, out of the heart of man, come these evil thoughts. Number one, sexual immorality. It's the Greek word pornia or pornea, uh, describing the widest forms of illicit sexual sin, whether inside the marriage or outside the marriage. It includes fornication, adultery, incest, which we read about in Leviticus 18, prostitution, and of course homosexuality. By the way, it wasn't until fairly recently that homosexuality was called homosexuality. It used to be called sodomy. That's a more biblical word. But not only do they not call it sodomy, now they have, they not only decriminalized sodomy fairly recently, but now they are endorsing homosexual, what they call marriages, which is not true marriage. Destroys societies, 
destroys the family because the family is the primary building block of civilization. Homosexuality has been decriminalized in legislation so that now the criminals are those who oppose homosexuals. Not in a personal way. We are to love homosexuals in the sense that they are sinners and they need Christ. We do not oppose them personally. We do not treat them bad. That is sin. But what we do oppose is their lifestyle. What we do oppose is that they are somehow victims of things they cannot help. We're all victims of things we cannot help. It's called sin. And only the gospel can deliver us from that. Only the gospel can convert someone and free them from the sinful vice of sexual immorality seen in homosexuality. But now, any parent, any pastor, any counselor who tries to convert someone away from that wicked lifestyle can be put in prison in Canada. And that will probably come to our country as well. Christians are to stand against all forms of sexual immorality. It's only conversion to Christ that can free them. Turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul speaks about the converting power of the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Pick up in verse 9. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But notice Paul says, verse 11, and such were some of you. Well, what happened? You were washed. You were sanctified. That means you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. You were given a new heart. You were washed by the Spirit of God. Your sins were washed away and you were given new desires. How? Through the gospel. That is why there is no hope for a society that has gone down the path of sexual immorality if they try to police the gospel. The gospel is the only solution. It's the only remedy frees people, delivers people. You're going to outlaw conversion? Then that means no one can preach the gospel. And if no one preaches the gospel, the society just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. Next, Jesus lists theft. It's the Greek word klape. It's where we get uh, our English word kleptomaniac. In New Testament times, former slaves converted to Christianity and Paul would have to tell them, let the thief who steals no longer, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his hands. He had to tell bond servants to submit to their masters in everything. In today's culture, here's the irony, irony, cultural Marxism talks about the oppressor and the oppressed you're an oppressor if you're a white Christian male because white Christian males established Western civilization built on Christianity. You're public enemy number one. They have essentially promoted a society of theft. The thieves are not white Christian males. The thieves are the government. Through their high taxation, 
that gives free handouts to other people that are viewed as the oppressed or viewed as the victims. That's theft. The government steals from its own citizens. That that shouldn't surprise us because when Israel asked for a king, God said, you don't understand what you're asking for in 1 Samuel. This king will reign over you. He will take your sons, your daughters, your vineyards, your fields, and give them to his servants. It's not the gospel. Any sort of communist utopia is not founded in the gospel. That is take, take, take. The gospel is about give, give, give. Mercy, mercy. Grace, grace. God has laid down lawful principles in his word related to hard work to help free a society from theft. That's why Paul says, work with your hands. If anyone doesn't provide for his own, he's worse than an unbeliever. So capitalism is a, is a Christian, it flows from the Christian foundation of our society. The thieves are those who take free handouts. The thieves are those who take money from citizens to give those free handouts. That's our society, marked with theft. Next, Jesus mentions murder. The heart of man is full of murder. Obviously, the abortion industry is wholesale murder of babies within the womb. Our culture is not any more sophisticated than Herod's infanticide where the Bethlehem boys were slaughtered. The gospel gives life. The gospel births anew into the kingdom of God. Only the gospel can stop murder. Only the gospel can free a heart from murder. Next, Jesus lists adultery. That's specifically a violation of the marriage bond. You could look at statistics today and you would find that half of every married couple ends up getting divorced. Usually the dissolution of marriage is the result of some form of adultery. Then there's coveting in verse 22. This is all forms of greed. Jesus said, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist in his possessions. Greed does not characterize God but it does characterize our society and that is why our society is also marked by the next thing and that is that is the, the wickedness, which is a catch-all word. A catch-all word. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, that's all part of the Ten Commandments. Jesus is essentially saying what Jeremiah has said here. Heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's why Proverbs tells us to watch over our hearts with all diligence from it flow the springs of life. Deceit is also mentioned there in verse 22. We're now on the back half of this list. These are the inner sinful drives. The actions were already listed. Here's what drives it all. Deceit. The heart is so evil that it's crafty and duplicitous in the way that it commits sin. Sensuality, that refers to unbridled lust. It's um, the idea of having perverted impulses that have free reign. Not only that, but Jesus also mentions envy. We live in an envious culture. If one is envious, he won't be generous. Proverbs 14.30 says, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, 
but envy makes the bones rot. That's why we have all this talk about victimhood and the oppressed. It's not because people are truly oppressed, it's because they're truly envious. They don't have what they want to have, and so they want to take it from other people. Envy is cataloged in Scripture. Envy caused Cain to murder Abel, influenced Joseph to be thrown into a pit. It incited Korah and Datham and Abiram to rebel against Moses and Aaron. Envy instigated Saul to pursue the life of David. That's why Winston Churchill said one time that socialism is the gospel of envy. Socialism, communism, any sort of utopia, Marxism, cultural Marxism, any of it, all of it, social justice, none of it produces anything of the grace and the mercy and the love that it claims it gives. It produces envy. And it feeds envy. That's our society. And then Jesus closes it off, slander and pride. Slander talking wickedly about other people, pride thinking you're better than others. That really marked the scribes and Pharisees. They pridefully thought they were better than everyone and then they blasphemed and slandered everyone who couldn't follow their extra biblical laws. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people like the Pharisees said in the temple. They loved to wear the long robe, sit in the chief places in the synagogue, recite long prayers to be noticed by others. Jesus is revealing the hearts of the religious leaders. Summed up in foolishness, the end of verse 22. Just as wickedness was a catch-all word for the outer sinful actions in this passage, uh, foolishness is a catch-all word for the inner sinful attitudes. And then Jesus just repeats in verse 23, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. That's where sin comes from. So what's the solution? Well, the solution is that sinners need a new nature. Sinners need a new heart. You don't need a ceremony. You don't need a ritual. You don't need laws. You need the gospel. You need what only the Spirit of God can do for you. Prophesied, by the way, in the Old Testament over and over and over again in language that spoke about being cleansed, being washed, being sanctified. We read about this in Ezekiel 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. From all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the hearts of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This is the power of the gospel. This is the sovereign work of of God. Nothing else can redeem us from our sin. Nothing else can save us from our sin. Paul was so clear about the gospel. He was clear about the fact that it alone washes our sins away. He says in Titus chapter 3 that God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, which he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Born again converts to Christ are the result of a miracle of God who can deliver them from any form of sexual immorality. 
That's why Paul said in Romans chapter 6, Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standards of teaching to which you were committed and you have been set free from sin and you have become slaves of righteousness. The gospel alone has the power to free sinners. The sexually immoral, those who steal, the adulterous, those who slander, those who are full of pride, all the things that Jesus lists in this passage. So Jesus clarifies, you want to know what marks a heart, here's what marks a heart apart from Christ. This morning we should not only stand with our Canadian brothers and sisters because it's the right thing to do to promote the biblical sexual ethic And we do that because we understand that our time is coming in our country when it will be outlawed here to preach and to speak the truth. But we also stand with our Canadian brothers to stand against homosexuality. Because in standing against homosexuality, guess what? We're actually standing up for homosexuals and we're saying your only hope is Christ. Turn to Christ, repent of your sin, be freed from that vice to avoid God's judgment. We seek the conversion of all sinners, not just homosexuals. We seek the conversion of all sinners, murderers, thieves, because at heart, we are all those things. We as Christians understand we deserve the judgment of God. And if it wasn't for the forgiving grace of God, we would be in the same boat they are in. We of all people understand we can't reform ourselves, we can't clean ourselves. We're too lost for that. We need a Savior who will wash the filth of our sin away, create in us a clean heart, just as the psalmist said, and free us and deliver us and place us into the kingdom of God so we can live the way God originally created us to live. That brings true joy, true peace, true satisfaction so if you're here this morning and you don't think you're a sinner let me just tell you this passage is abundantly clear that you don't just do sinful things that is who you are you are a sinner and you can no more become a non-sinner than if you just ripped your heart out It's who you are in your very core and your very essence. And if you don't have Christ, you have no hope. You have no hope of salvation. This is true not just for homosexuals, it's true for all of us. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. The Bible is clear that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So look to Christ, look to him in faith, receive his forgiveness, be washed by his blood, be cleansed, be sanctified so that you can have eternal life father we thank you for the scriptures which reveal to us in no uncertain terms the power of the gospel to free us and to cleanse us lord we recognize that apart from the reality of our own depravity our own exceeding sinfulness apart from your word revealing that we couldn't even be saved we have to understand and acknowledge we are sinners in order to receive the salvation of God, how can we want salvation if we don't see our need to be saved? And we can't see our need to be saved apart from seeing our own sin. 
So Lord, we pray that your gospel would have its way in our hearts for your glory. Lord, we do pray for truth to be proclaimed faithfully. Lord, we pray that sinners in our country, in Canada, and in the world would understand their sin. We pray that those in our society would understand their sin, convict them. Lord, as we faithfully proclaim the gospel, we pray for revival, we pray for reformation. We know that your word is powerful enough to do it. If enough people speak forth your truth, you are often pleased in your sovereignty to cause a revival, to cause a reformation. Lord, that your people would return to you, that you might bless our country, bless the visible church, that we might see fruit. We pray this for the sake of our country and also for the sake of our own children who will grow up and live in a society that has turned its back against God. Father, we pray for your mercy and your grace, trusting in your many provisions. We pray these things in the blessed name of Christ. Amen. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.